0: know by heart so I'm going to count on the Holy Spirit to bring it alive for us today to speak to us and help us find something brand new let's prepare our hearts and our minds to receive whatever God has for us as we explore his word together Um, I'm going to ask you to stand up but I'm not going to stand up because I'm afraid my magic boot microphone will fall off but if you all would stand up um, I want you to join me in a call to worship it's a responsive reading this day is a gift from God. A day to reflect, to thanks to good. This time is a pause from the fever of life. So let us sing and listen and pray and feast and let us worship God in the quiet, in the calm, in the stillness, in the clamor in the cry, in the grief, in this time, in this place, with each other. Even as we seek, let us worship God. Amen. But before I get started, I want to make two things really clear. The first thing is I'm super glad that God did not ask me to be a full-time prophet because I... I love talking about the verses in the Bible. that are like snuggly and fuzzy and make us feel really great. Passages like the one we're digging into today make me uptight. I don't like to tell people things that they don't want to hear because I want everybody to love me. I'm too fragile for that. So I'm really glad I didn't get called to do it all the time. And the second thing I want you to know is that I believe with my whole heart, truly, that if you really love Jesus and you're continually looking for ways to tell others about him, there's nothing wrong with literally wearing your faith on your sleeve. Or on your back. Or on your ribcage. If your pain threshold and your six-pack allow you to do that, have at it. I salute you. Our text this week includes Jeremiah 29.11. <clears throat> this is a verse that when it's taken out of context, offers just the kind of powerful comfort hope, and encouragement we want to share because the world needs it so desperately and we need it so desperately. Besides, that's what we're called to do, right? Shine our light. Share the good news. Let our light shine. So a Google search of the phrase Jeremiah 2911 gifts and merch yields 662,000 results. Which, first of all, suggests that we do a crazy amount of sharing this verse. And secondly, it radically stirred my curiosity. If I want to Jeremiah 29, 11 it up, what are my options? Who knows? So I dug around a little bit to see. I found a lot of stuff that was completely expected. You know, like magnets, mugs, bumper stickers, Bible covers, notepads, journals, jewelry, clothes, hats, and shoes. And then there was the unexpected. Like shower curtains and bathroom scales. (laughs) Thanks to online retailers like Zazzle and Cafe Press, you're pretty much limited only by your own imagination as to where you can display Jeremiah 2911. If you enjoy entertaining, invite some friends over to play Texas Hold'em or to put together a jigsaw puzzle that spells out Jeremiah 2911 and not, as it may appear, a ransom note from the Joker. (laughs) You can throw on your Jeremiah 29-11 apron and serve up some cheese on your Jeremiah 29-11 cheese board. Offer drinks from your Jeremiah 29-11 tray, but be sure to put down coasters first. Does your dog want to let his light shine too, only you can't quite figure out how to make that happen? Here you go. <laughs> and this is my personal favorite. Never have I ever snuck a Jeremiah 2911 flask into <laughs> a volcano or a concert. <laughs> but i got to be honest, I'm not going to put it past myself now that I know such a thing exists. I mean, that's just too good. Like John 3.16 or Psalm 23, this verse is so familiar to us that we recognize it by its name. It's kind of like the Beyonce or the Bono of Bible verses. But unlike John 3.16 and Psalm 23, Jeremiah 29.11, taken out of context, loses its heft. It's easily misunderstood, and it often costs us the opportunity to look more deeply and significantly into the heart of God. The message on its face is so appealing and soothing. We want it to be familiar. In fact, it makes sense that we want it to be so familiar that we are completely confident of its meaning, so much so that we're comfortable shorthanding it. But here's the problem with that. Shorthand really doesn't do this verse justice, especially since our takeaway is usually something along these lines. It's kind of like what happens when you say to your kid, it's fine for you to watch Netflix as long as your room is picked up, your homework is done, and your cats have been fed. And your kid hears, fine, watch Netflix. So she passes her unopened backpack on the way to break the hazmat seal on her bedroom, while the cats have given up hope of a meal and are prowling the neighborhood, looking for a soft touch they can con into feeding them some dinner. That's just a random example that popped into my head, totally not based on anything that might ever happen in real life. Not right, Josie? <laughs> this morning we're going to take a beat and consider Jeremiah 29:11 in light of a larger narrative. When we crack the candy coating, we find a story about sin, rebellion, punishment, exile, and despair. An extraordinary God who is bigger than all of it, who loves us, is always with us. And even when we feel the farthest away from him, he's continually looking for ways to bring us back home. He's continually making provision for our forgiveness and restoration. We'll see that the promises God makes through the prophet Jeremiah are absolutely relevant today, but just maybe not quite in the way we expect. So before we get into our passage, I want to step, set the stage for what's going on. Um, Israel was a united kingdom through the reign of King Solomon, but after his death, it was divided in two. So last week, Norma, you may remember, shared about the prophet Amos and his warnings to the ten tribes of Israel who lived in the north. Through Amos's prophecy, we see that justice and righteousness are inextricably linked in God's mind. And I want you to remember that because it's gonna come up later on today in um, our study. So the 10 tribes in the north ignored Amos and because they refused to turn back to God, they were taken into captivity in Assyria. And by this time, the morally superior Southern portion there was um, in pretty significant state of rebellion. And when God appointed someone to speak out on his behalf, he chose the son of a priest, a kid named Jeremiah. Unlike Amos, Jeremiah was called to speak in his own country, among his own people. When he describes his calling, Jeremiah says that God told him that he would be over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant seems a little bit schizophrenic but the bottom line is Jeremiah realized early on that he had a twofold message. He has to deliver some really harsh and painful truth about God's judgment against Israel because of their disobedience, but he'll also get to share with them a message of hope. And this is how Jeremiah has been represented by the masters. Now there's one that I found was especially interesting. This is how Michelangelo depicts Jeremiah on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. One more there, Andrea. He's actually looking down over the Pope from the ceiling. There, there it is. Um, Michelangelo's depiction makes Jeremiah look like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders, which is a pretty accurate look based on what his book tells us about him. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he endured a tremendous amount of suffering throughout his ministry and his writing is full of emotion and anguish over the way Israel turned from God then refused to be sorry about it and seek God's forgiveness. Also Jeremiah was charged with delivering this message of impending doom that nobody wanted to hear. He actually reminds me a little bit of a cross between Eeyore and Jiminy Cricket, always having to be the sad and lonely advocate for obedience. His heart was broken for God's people, especially when he had to witness his own prophecies come into light. You know, Amos was a little bit removed from the people he was prophesying to. I don't know. You kind of, I don't know about you. I kind of got the sense that he was like, yeah, you kind of made your bed, so <laughs> there you go. This was a different situation. You know, these were Jeremiah's people, this was his home. And it was really devastating to him to have to say all of these harsh things, but particularly among these people who. He loved so much. He was the son of a priest, and he was a preacher himself, so I think it stands to reason that the destruction of the temple would have been really especially devastating to him. So let's pick up the story with our text today at the beginning of chapter 29. The prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles Nebuchadnezzar had carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was addressed to the elders who were left among the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets. And to all the other people who are exiled in Babylon, the Lord God of Israel, who rules over all, to all those he sent into exile in Babylon from Jerusalem build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and allow your daughters to get married so that they too can have sons and daughters. Grow in number, do not dwindle away. Work to see that the city where I sent you as exiles enjoys peace and prosperity. Pray to the Lord for it, for as it prospers, you will prosper. For the Lord God of Israel, who rules over all, says, Do not let the prophets or those among you who claim to be able to predict the future by divination deceive you. Do not pay any attention to the dreams that you're encouraging them to dream. They're prophesying lies to you and claiming my authority to do so. But I did not send them. I, the Lord, affirm it. the Lord says only when the 70 years of Babylonian rule are over will I again take up consideration for you then I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore you to your homeland for I know what I've planned for you says the Lord I have plans to prosper you not to harm you I have plans to give you a future filled with hope when you call out to me and come to me in prayer I'll hear your prayers when you seek me in prayer and worship you'll find me available to you If you seek me with all your heart and soul, I will make myself available to you, says the Lord. Then I will reverse your plight, and I will regather you from all the nations and all the places where I've exiled you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I exiled you. Now, the you in this letter is plural. Jeremiah was speaking to a very specific community at a particular time in history, but it's also a really personal text. It's a message to the individuals who made up that community. So let's think about it that way. Have you ever felt like an exile? You might never have been dragged off by a foreign military and held captive in a strange country, but on some level, it's emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, you can probably relate. Maybe your exile was self-inflicted or self-imposed. Maybe you found yourself exiled through no fault of your own, which is probably when it's hardest to trust God. You could be there right now. The nature of exile is cold to dark and unfamiliar. The Israelites' home, their culture, their religious structure, and their way of life have all been decimated. Think what it would have been like for them to be told that their exile would last 70 years, and in the meantime... They're to carry on as if everything is totally normal. How can they have been expected to do that? If you've heard Chris give his testimony, you know that we were separated before we moved to Fayetteville together. I've never grieved as hard or been as completely overwhelmed as I was during that time. For the first several weeks, I was pretty much consumed with anxiety and impatience. I just wanted the separation to end one way or the other. I didn't really much care how. But whenever I prayed, I had a heavy sense in my spirit that it wouldn't be over anytime soon. That God was giving me the chance to be still and let him work without any promise of relief. If someone had told me early on, God wants me to let you know that you'll be separated for almost six years, I think I'd have punched him in the neck. (laughs) I mean, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that their suffering will continue. That's why the false prophet sounded so good to the exiles, and I think it's one reason that the prosperity gospel sounds so good to us. In the midst of my own suffering, when I was overcome by the certainty that everything terrible I had ever believed about myself was very obviously true, God constantly reminded me that I'm never alone, that he loves me, and that there was life to live. No matter how hard it got, He'd give me whatever I needed to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and he did. And I couldn't shut up about it, <laughs> about the gracious, compassionate, provisional way he carried our girls and me, and Chris too. Has anyone ever said to you, wow, things are so great in your life. There's something different about you. How do you handle it? Everything is great in my life too, and I just don't know if I can keep going. No, you know, me either. (laughs) Our struggles were really public, and so I didn't have any secrets from anybody. So for better or for worse, people were watching. And I can tell you from personal experience that this world is full of hurting people who need to know Jesus, and an honest testimony of his grace and goodness in our exile might be the most powerful thing he uses to draw them to him. So when the waiting is over for the exiles, that's when verse 11 becomes significant. Jeremiah says that even though they've broken covenant with God, he will never break covenant with them. God will never stop loving us or break his promises to us. He's not willing to let our sin and our rebellion decide the status of our relationship with him. He's just not. But he sets conditions on the blessing he's offering the exiles. They're to call upon him, come to him, pray to him, seek him, search for him with all their hearts. Now think about that. He's talking about utter dependence on him as a way of life. Do you hear the Reformation theology in that? And they're to worship him. That's a condition for receiving the prospering and the future full of hope. You know, we were reminded last week, like I mentioned earlier, that in God's heart, worship is bound together with seeking righteous justice as a way of life. In earlier chapters, Jeremiah talks about how the Israelites had broken covenant with God, how they and their leaders disobeyed the teaching of the Torah and laid out specific provisions for the rights and protection of immigrants, widows, and orphans. They had no regard for righteous justice. When I was 16, I got my driver's license. I didn't have a car of my own, so my mom shared her car with me. It was a bright yellow Caprice Classic station wagon. Looked just like that. (laughs) It was so cool. (laughs) And my mom taught fifth grade for several years at the only year immediate school in Batesville, and she drove that car for several years. Every morning that she drove to school, she parked it right out the window of her classroom. So, all of her students knew that car by heart. And they knew me because on the mornings I drove, I dropped her off near where the bus is unloaded. Now, Brian and Debbie Holt have lived in Batesville, and I bet they can tell you that a preacher's kid driving a barge that's the color of the sun couldn't really move around undetected. All right? Yeah. <laughs> Back then, I didn't have a whole lot of regard or respect for the speed limits. Completely reformed now as a wiser and more responsible adult. So on more than one occasion, some little narc would come to school so excited to get to tell my mom that they had seen me just flying down some you know side street in baseball on the way to a ball game, or on the way you know to I don't know Sonic or whatever, something really pressing and urgent. I'm sure. If we're going to claim God's promises and wear them publicly. We need to be sure we understand what we're signing on for, and we can't take them out of context. This promise we love so much in Jeremiah 29, 11 is conditional. Are we meeting those conditions? If, for instance, we claim his promises, but we refuse to stand up for orphans, widows, immigrants, refugees, either by what we do or what we leave undone, haven't we missed something really huge? We're going to drive an enormous yellow station wagon that's obvious to everyone. We better be sure we're driving the speed limit. A reading of Jeremiah 29 11 at face value also cost us the chance to see the bigger, more significant picture. That God's love is permanent. His promises are secure. And his heart is for restoration. Since before he placed Adam in the garden, his plan has been to make a way for us to be restored in relationship with him. Just a couple of chapters ahead, Jeremiah speaks to that. Indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt, for they violated that covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. For I will forgive their sin and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. And that's chapter 31, just a couple of chapters ahead. I want to invite the worship team back to the stage and as they make their way up here, um, remember that we're going to observe the beginning of Advent in just a couple of weeks. So I think this is a really perfect time to think back on God's provision of a Savior and to celebrate his forever commitment to us. Come to the table and remember the words that Jesus spoke because they were based on that very prophecy in Jeremiah. Then he took the bread And after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And we don't dismiss by rose here. If this is your first time at Grace, come to the table as you feel led. Everyone is welcome. You can worship through giving to the ministries of the church as the basket is passed. And if you need to pray, find someone near you to share with. Won't you come?